we in Mark 3? I'll read through the uh, passage from, chap, uh, from chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, we're going to go through to verse 12 tonight. And uh, then we'll pray and then we'll study. Again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness, their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and uh, Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study your word tonight, that you would enable us to hear from your spirit, Lord. I pray you enable me to teach your truth, to teach the content of this passage, what Mark intended for us to know, what you intended for us to know. And Lord, that it would be faithful to the text. And in doing so, Lord, we trust that your Holy Spirit would work through the text, illuminating it, and then transforming us in our inner being, that we might become more like you. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are now at the final incident in the controversy section of Mark's Gospel. So, just because it's important, because we're wrapping things up, uh, let's go back to the beginning of this section, which started in chapter 1 and verse 40 with the healing of a leper. If you remember, the leper pushed himself upon Jesus, and although virtually every Bible translation says that Jesus was moved with pity, virtually every Bible commentator of an academic level these days is convinced that he was moved with anger. That's a textual issue. Got some Greek manuscripts that say anger, most say pity, but the problem is, is how do you explain anyone replacing pity with anger? It's very easy to explain them replacing anger with pity. So my whole argument there was that by coming forwards to Jesus and giving him Firstly, giving the impression by reaching out to touch him, giving the impression of making Jesus unclean, but also, perhaps more significantly, coming into the camp where he wasn't allowed and potentially making everybody else around him unclean. That was a disregard for Mosaic law. And Jesus, as we've seen throughout these controversies, Jesus has been told that he is a lawbreaker. 
But as I've made clear with each controversy, it is only the Pharisaic interpretation of Mosaic law that he's broken. The actual law of Moses he's kept perfectly. And it is the Pharisees who've continually, generation after generation, put ever stricter laws, ever stricter interpretations of the laws, ever greater protection of the law. Fences to stop you going on the law, and fences to stop you going on the fences, and fences to stop you going on those fences, and just keeping you further and further away from breaking the law until the laws were just becoming nonsensical. We spoke last time about how um, when the Pharisees condemned the disciples of Jesus for plucking up grains of wheat and eating them on the way, uh, because they considered that to be harvesting and uh, threshing and uh, winnowing and threshing. And that the Pharisees even prevented people from walking on grass on the Sabbath. Because if on that grass there was just one piece of wheat, if they accidentally trod, you know, we're not talking about grass that's mowed by a gardener regularly, we're talking about like tall grass. If they walked through the tall grass and accidentally trod on some wheat, they could accidentally break the grain free, which is harvesting. And they could end up uh, doing that work of harvesting on the Sabbath, so no walking on the grass. That was how ridiculous the Pharisaic laws were. So Jesus would, would actively break their laws, but he never broke Mosaic law. But the leper in chapter 1, the leper showed a disregard for the law of Moses. There were regulations regarding leprosy and lepers not contaminating and making other people unclean. And he showed a reckless abandon in that regard. And as such, Jesus was angry with him. And what happened with this man was it proved Jesus' point because after he was healed of leprosy, which was a hugely significant thing, an entire chapter of Leviticus set aside for what you do when a Jew who's under the law has been healed of leprosy. And since that law was given, no Jew had ever been healed of leprosy. An entire chapter sitting and waiting for generation after generation, century after century. And the Pharisees concluded, and rightly so, that it was probably something that only the Messiah would do. And so Jesus heals the leper, and he sends him to the Pharisees as a statement of who he is. And the man is so excited by his healing, again, he doesn't care for the law. He runs off, just as he ran into the camp, contaminating people, he runs out of the camp and goes and tells everyone how he's been healed and he doesn't present himself and give the sacrifices that's required for a healed leper. And then in contrast, at the beginning of chapter 2, we have the paralytic who shows great faith, like the leper did coming to Jesus, who goes out in his way to come to Jesus, like the leper did, who pretty much forces himself, care of his friends, onto Jesus, as the leper did. But this man had true faith, and this man didn't disregard Mosaic law. And this man was not only healed, he was declared to be saved by the faith that he had shown. And Levi, the uh, disciple, Matthew as we know him, is then called in the next section. And that calling comes ahead of the other calling of the apostles that we're going to see next week. We'll look at the uh, calling of the twelve next week. 
And Levi is pulled out ahead of time because Mark wants to draw our attention to how after he follows Jesus, he ends up reclining at his house and feasting and celebrating his newfound salvation, his new position, having been a tax collector now in the kingdom of God. He invites other tax collector friends and other kinds of sinners around to uh, hear from Jesus. And the Pharisees are like, oh, you're hanging around with those kind of people. And again, that's something that they forbade. Moses didn't, but they did. And so that caused controversy. And then in the next section, we had Jesus and the disciples who weren't fasting, unlike John's disciples had done, like the Pharisees did. And the explanation for that was given. And ultimately, the main reason was, is that the Pharisees had their own system of, hey, look at me, look how holy I am. And Jesus was like, we need a whole new system. You're not going to put new wine into old wineskins. It's not going to be able to hold it. They'll split and they'll break. And the wine will be lost. This is something new. This is new covenant salvation, as we'll see by the end of the gospel. And therefore, the Pharisaic system doesn't fit. So, Jesus starts his controversies, and this was the important point, with a leper. It wasn't part of the controversies, but only because the man didn't go. So I include it as being part of the controversies between Jesus and the religious leaders, because he should have gone to the religious leaders, and it would have caused a controversy. It would have been the starting point, but he didn't do that. So the controversy became the man rather, rather than the leaders, who should have been aware, but weren't aware. But that's where I start the controversies. And then, like I said, we have the paralytic, we have Lee, uh, being healed on the Sabbath, and uh, that offending the Pharisees. Then we have the Levi and the tax collectors. We have the fasting. And then we had, last uh, time we were in Mark a couple of weeks ago, we had him going through uh, the grain fields and plucking wheat, and that being a violation of their interpretation of the Sabbath. Now, this week, that's important, I'm sorry there's a lot of that, but it's important that we just go through that structure because this week at the start of chapter 3, we have the final section of controversy between verses 1 and verse 6, and then we have a nice summary section wrapping up the whole section from 7 through to 12. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the structure that is to come afterwards. Afterwards, we're going to have the calling of the twelve the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus' mothers and brothers. Now, I used to look at Mark and think that they were very, how strange to have these passages side by side. They're kind of, they seem unrelated. But they actually fit really well into the pattern. Here's the controversies. Jesus has been presenting himself to the religious leaders in such a way as to say, I am the Messiah, but also in such a way as to say, I reject your system of religion. You need to do it my way, and the people need to do it my way, and not your way. And now, having made that presentation, which we'll finish today, he then will go to the, and choose his people, the twelve, and then the religious leaders, with Jesus having made his choice, they will make their choice. And they will make a choice to reject Jesus, to reject his messiahship, and to accredit his miracles being accomplished through demonic possession himself. That he is possessed by a demon. 
And then after that, we have his own family making their choice. So we have three passages where people make their choices. Je Jesus makes his choices, the uh, religious leaders make their choice, and then Jesus' family make their choice. So these are decisions, choices that are made in light of how Jesus has presented himself. And he's presented himself, remember back at the beginning of chapter 1, by proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. And by casting out demons who would try and hinder his preaching. And as a result of that, he then has now entered this period of controversy where he is not just saying, hey, come and follow me. He's making very clear with these, contra with these controversies, he's making clear, and by following me, you're leaving them. That's crucial. That's really crucial. You can't have the new wine and old wineskins. You can't have follow Jesus and follow Pharisaic Judaism. You can't have both. So that's the whole structure of Mark's Gospel to the end of chapter 3. Now we can see how our last controversy fits in. He goes into the synagogue. We've seen him there, there already, haven't we? He teaches in the synagogue. What does he teach? He proclaims the good news. The good news is what? It's not that he's died on the cross, because he hasn't yet. The good news is that the Son of God is here, the Son of Man is here, that the Kingdom of God is at hand, and they have to repent and believe in him, not the Pharisaic system, believe in him, and then they'll have a place in the kingdom. Now the Pharisees are offering all Jews a place in the kingdom. They taught that all Israel had a share in the kingdom to come. They were saying that not just the people who followed them were saved, but even the rebellious Jews who didn't follow them were going to have a part in the kingdom. Not as good a part in the kingdom, but a part in the kingdom nevertheless. Jesus is saying, no, you need to repent of your sins and believe in me if you want a part of the kingdom. And so he's there preaching that message in the synagogue. And a man is there with a withered hand. Now notice the difference here. This isn't like the paralytic or the leper. This isn't a person pushing himself upon Jesus. This is a man who is there. Now I have argued, contrary to most commentators, I've argued consistently up to this point that Jesus hasn't tried to be a healer. He has been a reluctant healer. He's healed when it's been forced upon him. And he's healed for a purpose, to make a statement about who he is. But only when it's been forced upon him. He hasn't gone out and healed lots of people. He healed Peter's mother-in-law privately and the word got out. And now everybody wants to be healed. Now we're going to find out in a minute that because he is who he is, that some other people did get healed. And Mark's going to let that slip. But up to this point, the presentation that Mark is giving is he's not going out there to be a healer. He's going out there to proclaim. And so he's proclaiming, and there's a man there listening to his proclamation who has a withered hand. He obviously knows that Jesus can heal. He probably wants to be healed, but he knows that his job is to listen. <laughs> and so he's listening. That's kind of the, the picture that Mark's painted for us. And then verse 2, and they watched Jesus, and the they refers back to the previous chapter and the religious leaders who had accused Jesus of breaking Sabbath, or more accurately, his disciples of breaking the Sabbath by harvesting on the Sabbath. 
And it's they who watched Jesus to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Guys, I've been a pastor a few years and I can assure you that this disgusting attitude is alive and well in the church. That somebody has an issue with me as a pastor and they'll come and listen not to hear from God, not to be blessed, not to search the scriptures to see what's true, not even to critically analyse what I have to say. No, they've simply come to see if they can use something against me. This goes on all the time in churches. Power play, politics, people manoeuvring themselves. And it is disgusting. It's disgusting. That Pharisees would come people who are the, the representation of God, the teachers of the law of God, would come and sit before God in human flesh. And they weren't even interested in him teaching them. They simply wanted to catch him out. It's very easy to get there. All you've got to do is to substitute love for God for love for religion. It's that simple. All you've got to do is value your traditions, your ways of doing things, more than you value God and his word. And then Christ can speak to you clearly from the Bible, but it doesn't matter because you just simply want to prove him wrong so that you can be right. Shame on any of us that go to that place. But there's plenty of them in the church. Less said about that, probably the better. Haven't seen too many here. You're good. <laughs> but, uh, so they're there while he's preaching a message against their system. And they're not there because they want to change system. They're there because they want to see if he'll do something so they can say, look, he's a bad guy, he's healing on the Sabbath. Who would do such a thing? Heal on the Sabbath. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now, there's no indication from Mark at this point that Jesus knew what they were thinking, but I don't think you needed to be a prophet or even the son of God to know what they were thinking. John the Baptist, remember, when the Pharisees turned up, John the Baptist is preaching essentially the same message. The kingdom of God is at hand, it's within reach. You need to repent and believe, not in me, but in the one I'm going to point out to you. Jesus has just come and taken the baton from him. You know, he's, he's like, now you need to believe in me. And John said, ah, he's here now. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's the one you've got to follow. But essentially, it's the same message. Kingdom of God is available. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And when the Pharisees, not that we saw it in Mark's gospel, but other gospels, when the Pharisees turn up at uh, the baptisms of John, John says, why are you here, you brood of vipers? Who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Which, by the way, is biting sarcasm contained for us within Scripture. John is basically saying, you're not here to repent, get lost. This is a message of repentance for people who want to repent, not for people who are judging. 
And that's exactly what they're doing here. And so Jesus, almost certainly without any divine input, without any use of his divine uh, ability, without any, um, without any use of a prophetic gifting by the power of the Spirit, he sees the guys there, he knows what they're there for. And so what does he do? Does he avoid the issue? Oh, no, no, no. That's not my Jesus. Listen, too many of us think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know, I hear Christians say all the time, say, oh, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't go into that area. That's controversial. We, need, we don't want to offend people as if somehow they're mimicking Jesus. Jesus had religious people misrepresenting the gospel and he saved his harshest words and his meanest behavior for those people. And I believe that us being Christ-like means mirroring that behavior, mimicking it. If you find someone on the street, if you go out into the world and you meet someone who is a sinner, the tax collectors of the day, if you go and find someone who is as far removed from a safe church as you could possibly find, if you go find that person, then my suggestion is to treat them gently, but preach the gospel. But when you come in a church and you have someone who claims to be God's and they are bitter and they are nasty and they are spiteful and they are malicious and they cause harm and they crave power and they're Pharisees, you don't mince your words. You don't treat them gently or else you're not being Christ-like. Now I understand there's not an exact parallel. Christ had authority that we don't have. But at the same point, the Pharisees were false teachers. And the pattern of being ruthless with false teachers continues right the way through all the letters to the churches. There is a place to be loving and gentle and graceful to someone who is seeking Christ genuinely. But there is also a place to be absolutely, unapologetically, in-your-face offensive to a religious person who misrepresents Christ. And this is what Jesus does. He says, ah, oh, you're waiting to see if I'm going to heal them? Heal him? Let's heal him. Come here. Come along. Let's do it then. You want to see a show? I'll give you your show. So Jesus, again, the reluctant healer, he's not healing en masse. He's healed a few people. The word's got out, but here he is healing this person, not because it's his normal pattern, but because he's going to make a point. Let's see what his point is. So he says to the man, come here. Now, again, you need to always, with these gospel accounts, picture this in your head. The man has a withered hand. Now, it's obvious he's got a withered hand. You know, he's, he's hanging limply or something. He can't pick things up. It's, a, it's essentially a useless limb, all right? It's so obvious it can be seen by the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, even within a crowd and within the synagogue, can say, oh, look, there's a guy with a dodgy hand. I wonder if he'll heal him. So it, it, it's noticeable and visible. Jesus calls him up and the guy's there. So you're expecting him to heal. But before he heals, he then turns and speaks to the religious leaders. They've been there plotting and thinking in their hearts and Jesus now speaks to those wicked hearts. And he says to them, is it lawful? I love that expression. 
Whenever we see the expression, is it lawful in Scripture, we've always got to ask ourselves in the context, what law? We're going to come a little bit later on in Mark's Gospel to a very misunderstood passage about divorce. And people seem to think that somehow the passage is applicable to Christians and churches today. But Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and saying, is it lawful? What's he talking about? He's not talking about law in America in the 21st century. And he's not talking about the law of Christ post-cross either. He's talking about Mosaic law under the Old Covenant, which is where they were. So we've always got to ask ourselves, when he says, is it lawful, what's he talking about? Well, clearly, he's talking to the teachers of the law of Moses, and he's asking them, is it lawful, implication according to Moses, because they're the experts, on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, Matthew in his gospel is more specific, but we're not doing Matthew, so we'll ignore that for a moment. But there is a reference to the pulling out of animals from a pit. And the Pharisees did teach. Remember, the principle is no work on the Sabbath. If you're a doctor, you don't have patients on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees did allow you to have a patient on the Sabbath if that person was about to die. That's very gracious of them, is it not? But the guy has a withered hand. He's probably had a withered hand for years. The whole point of the withered hand is it's clearly a major problem, but it's clearly not life-threatening either. It's not like he's lost a hand and he's got blood pouring out of an artery or something, you know? It's a withered hand. You can't use it. And he probably hasn't used it for a long time. So the issue with animals would be is that if an animal fell into the pit... If you had an ox and an ox fell into a pit and you leave your ox there, right, for the Sabbath, your ox might be dead the next day. So even the Pharisees would let you pull your ox out of the pit on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees have created all of these rules and stuff around the Sabbath. Moses never gave these regulations. He never gave these extra regulations on top of what Scripture taught. They've given these regulations, and in their infinite wisdom, they've said, well, look, if someone's going to die, you can heal them. If, if an animal falls in a pit, you can heal it, but you can't heal a guy with a withered hand. Now, remember the purpose of Sabbath law. The purpose of Sabbath law is you didn't do your profession. You didn't earn money. You had a day of rest, and you trusted God in the other six days for enough provision for the seventh. If you were a butcher, you didn't do butchering. If you were a farmer, you didn't do harvesting. If you were a fisherman, you didn't do fishing. Jesus is not a doctor. He's done a few, and this is what, I think this is part of the reason why Mark has presented Jesus very carefully as a reluctant healer. This isn't what Jesus was doing every day. He's not just doing, he's not being paid for it. It's not his profession. And so Jesus is saying to them, look, what's Moses said about this? On the Sabbath, do we do good or do harm? Do we save a life or kill? In other words, he's saying, look, you guys, in your own way, and even your interpretation, you understand that if an ox is in a pit, you can pull it out. If someone's going to die, you save them. It's okay to do good on a Sabbath. So... Why is it a problem for me to do this? Why have you got a rule against this, but not a rule against that? Now, over the years that I studied the Scriptures, I've developed 
a very strong loathing for legalism. I call it maturity. I think that's part of maturing in the faith. I think that sometimes people tolerate legalism far too much. I've developed a strong loathing for it. But it, it gets me into all sorts of trouble in the real world. <laughs> because, you know, there'll be, there'll be a, a rule, you know, there'll be, I don't know, there'll be some sort of council regulation, city regulation, that you, you can do this, but you can't do that. And it makes no sense. But why can you do this? And I hate that. Oh, it drives me mad. Because, because in this, this is how Jesus operated. It's like, that makes no sense. Why would you legislate against doing this and not legislate against that? And in fact, this is a method of argumentation that the Pharisees themselves used. It was a rabbinical method of argumentation, which if you translate it from the original, it translates as arguing from the lesser to the greater. In other words, if it's okay to take a, a, an animal out of a pit, and let's face it, some of those animals might have died, but many of the ones they're pulling out aren't going to die. You're saving yourself work for the next day. So you can help an animal that's, that's in, in trouble, that needs help on the Sabbath, but you can't help a man? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's showing them the foolishness of their system. And you've got to remember, everything's been built into this. He said, old wineskins, no good. Old system, no good. You've got to follow me, you've got to have a whole new system. And he said to them straight, look, you, I'm paraphrasing very loosely here, but he's essentially saying, look, you're the, you're the experts on Moses. Did Moses say it was good to do good or do harm on the Sabbath? Did he say it was okay? Uh, to save a life or to kill? And their response is silence. Because he's outfought them and out-argued them. He's shown them, what he's done is their entire religious system revolved around the presumption. And logically, if you like these kind of things, it's what we call question begging. When you presume your conclusion and then argue it. Pardon me. What he's saying to them is, your whole system revolves around this concept that here's the law of Moses, which has been written down, and here is your additional rules, which they called the oral law. And over the years, a tradition had developed that in fact a lot of these laws, if not most of them, were actually given by Moses as well, but they just didn't happen to be written down. And so they're, they're, they're putting their law and Moses' law all together into one big chunk. And what Jesus has done is he's come along like a samurai and gone whoosh, down the middle and separated them and said, nope, this is the law of Moses and this is your legalism, your additional rules. And he's exposed it to them. And their response, uh, uh, there's no answer. He's used their own system of logic to show them that their entire religious system is false. Or at least a very good example of how it is false in many places. Now, verse 5, I think, is very, very interesting. He looked around at them with anger. Now, you guys who've heard me preach more than a handful of occasions... How many times have I used the word inclusio or sandwich? I've shown you again and again and again. 
A passage starts with this point, a passage ends with this point. A section starts with this point, a section ends with this point. It's an inclusio. It's a sandwich. It, it, it's the same thing at the beginning and the same thing at the end. We even saw it this morning at the end of chapter 1 of Colossians. Two things communicated the same thing in different ways, holding the whole section together. Right? The controversy started with Jesus and the leper. And I argued that he was not moved with pity, he was moved with anger. And now at the end of the controversies, what emotion do we see in Jesus again? Anger. It's an anger inclusio. And that, if you're interested in the, the scholarly terms, that would be called internal evidence. External evidence is when you look at the different manuscripts and you say, oh, these manuscripts say this, and they see that they, these manuscripts say that. Internal evidence is when you look within the text and see which one is more likely to be true. And I think that's a really good argument for chapter one being anger because we have an anger inclusio over the whole section. And isn't it fitting? Jesus is deliberately going into battle with the Pharisees. He's deliberately having controversies with legalistic religious leaders who overburdened the people and kept them away from the kingdom of God while telling them they had a place in the kingdom of God. And the only fitting response to that kind of situation is anger. And so Jesus was angry with a man who disregarded Mosaic law at the beginning. And now at the end, he's exactly the same. He's angry with people who've disregarded Mosaic law. So they're the same thing, but the transition is he starts with just a nobody, unclean leper. Who would you expect to not care much for the things of God? And now at the end of the section, he comes to the people whose very existence was there to defend the law of Moses. And they, not by taking away like the man did, but by their additions, they've taken away the essence of what Moses taught. And that are the two ways in which we can be disobedient to God's law. One way is by disregarding law altogether and doing whatever we want. But legalism is just as much a disregard of God's word because it says God's word isn't sufficient. I need to give you some extra rules just to make it a bit clearer. And that is just as much a rejection of God's word as the total disregard. And I do love how when it's completely unplanned, these things come together. But we're going to see in the next couple of Sunday mornings in Colossians chapter 2, how Paul will argue that the additional rules and regulations are as much a work of the flesh as the neglect of any rules at all. Both are sin. And it, it, I've, I, I don't want to just be repetitious, but we need to keep sounding this message loud because there's church after church after church full of people who still think that having additional rules makes them more holy. It doesn't. It makes you less holy as soon as you apply those rules to other people. Apply them to yourself all you like. Nothing wrong with that at all. You know, you can say it's more, I want to go to bed at 8 o'clock at night. Early to bed, early to rise, 
I'm going to be a more productive person. That's absolutely fine. Go ahead, do it. No one's got a problem with that. Good on you. But the second you make somebody else have to do that, the second you look down at somebody else who doesn't do that, you've sinned. And that is as much of a sin as the people that they would sneer their noses at who go out and stay up all night long. It doesn't matter whether we disregard law by omission or addition. It's a disregarding of the law either way, and we know how Jesus feels about that. He feels angry. That's a great little section, isn't it, all together like that? I do love it when it all comes together. So, he is angry. And not only is he angry, look at the other emotion he has. He's grieved. He's upset. He's angry and upset. And often, you guys will know in your own lives, anger and, and, and being upset often go hand in hand together. And he says that he's grieved specifically because of the hardness of their heart. He has presented to them, he's presented to them evidence of the failures of their system. He's presented to them evidence of who he is. And by the end of this chapter, they're going to make a conclusion that is absolutely breathtakingly wrong. And why will they do that? Because they're so hard-hearted, they can't be wrong. God must be wrong. Now, no one would ever say that, would they? Well, God's wrong, but I'm right. You wouldn't get a Christian saying that. You wouldn't get an evangelical saying that. But up and down the land, every Sunday, there's passages of Scripture where the Bible clearly teaches something, and it's just not what the pastor wants to hear or wants to say. And so God's wrong, and he's right. Of course, he rewords it to mean that, well, God didn't mean that. Let me just explain to you what he did mean, which, of course, is no different than what the serpent said in the garden to Eve, which is, did God really say? And so... The hardness of their heart means they're not prepared to be wrong. And so Jesus then turns from them to the man. And he says, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. I love these kind of miracles. Jesus does it all the time. In John chapter 2, when the water is turned into wine, they fill up the jugs, the water, and then it says, and when they poured out the water that had become wine... It's, it's almost, it's not like, ta-da, look, miracle. It's just, it almost happens as an aside. Oh, it's, it's already happened. He stretched out here, stretched out your hand, he stretched your hand, it's healed. It's just a, almost a nonchalant kind of miracle. There are plenty of those kind of miracles in the scripture. And, and I just want us to understand, obviously the man is healed, and Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and Jesus wrote Mosaic law, <laughs> so he, he gave the law, so he knows it's not a violation of the Sabbath. But just, just remember what's happened here. They've turned up to say, let's see if he does it. And Jesus says, it's kind of almost like a face-off, isn't it? It's like a couple of gang members facing each other off. He says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do exactly that. And so he says, look, I'm about to do it, but before I do it, let me just use your logic to explain to you that your system is wrong and that what I'm about to do isn't wrong at all. Any response? No? Nothing at all? No quotes from Scripture anywhere else that could prove me wrong? No clever arguments to come back at me? Nothing at all? 
You people who spent your entire life studying and memorizing scripture, you got nothing? In that case, you're healed. That is a total humiliation. You've got to understand. Jesus may be angry, verse 4 and 5, but in verse 6, the Pharisees are now angry. He has taken the most respected leaders of the day and he has deliberately and publicly humiliated them and torn apart their entire system and rendered their entire lives as wasted in the process. And that is why in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately, I love that phrase, remember I told you before, immediately is, I like to translate it, hashtag boom. It's like, it's like a focus, it's like, and boom, there. And, and what Mark's doing is it's like, it's like a, um, I always think of John as being, I said to you before, I think of John as being the, the, the screenplay kind of gospel, almost like an Oscar winner, whereas Mark is more like a Michael Bay film. It's kind of like, boom, action, boom, action, like this, you know? And, and you imagine, you've got this whole thing going on. The camera, think of it as a movie. The camera's on this man, and the Pharisees, and the man, and the Pharisees, and the man, and then, wow, the man's healed. And then, boom, camera shift to the Pharisees. You see, the point here is not the miracle per se. The point is the reaction that they have to that miracle. And there, immediately, boom, focus your attention now. They held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, first of all, you're probably not familiar with Herodians. I don't suppose you walk down the street today and, oh, no, there's my local Herodian. You know, you might not be familiar with them. The Herodians were as far removed from the Pharisees as one could be. The Pharisees were, in their mind, the protectors of Mosaic law. And not just of Mosaic law, but of all things Jewish. The fact that the Romans had authority over them was horrific in their minds. It was humiliating. It was terrible. It was a bad thing. They wanted to be free from them. They were all about keeping the law to the minutiae, and that's why they had all these thousands of additional rules and reg regulations to ensure that nobody even got within a, a country mile of breaking a Mosaic law. They were the ones that punished people when they didn't keep Mosaic law. They were the protectors of the law and all things Jewish. The Herodians, in contrast, were people who actually wanted the Romans to rule over them. They were politically as far apart as could be. They made Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton look like best friends. They were just complete opposite extremes. The Herodians, they wanted Roman rule as long as it came through the house of Herod. They not only wanted Roman rule, but they wanted this, this Hellenizing is the official term. Literally, it means making Greek. They, they, they didn't care for Jewishness. They didn't care for Mosaic law. They were the people who were basically, the Pharisees are like the religious people saying, look, no, 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 no. You know, you can't, you can't uh, live with somebody if you're not married to them. And they're there saying, no, let's bring in gay marriage. Who cares? Let's do whatever we want. Let's have transgenders. You know, it's that kind of extreme. 
The Pharisees are trying to pr protect their religious way of doing things and the Herodians are saying, let the Romans come in, we're better off under the Romans, let's just trust them, let's do things their way, let's, let's live life the way, oh, we don't have to worry about the law and stuff like that. These, these people are as actively opposed to each other as you could possibly be. The Pharisees have dedicated their lives to protecting and preserving Mosaic law and, and the Herodians are going out of their way to bring an end to it. You couldn't have two people who are more opposed to one another, but they agree on one thing. Jesus isn't good for business. Jesus is a problem. Jesus is a problem to the Pharisees, as we've seen through the controversies, and Jesus is potentially, he's calling people to come for the kingdom of God. Hey, you've been waiting for someone to come and set up a kingdom on earth? I'm here, believe in me. That's not good news if you want the Romans to rule, is it? So now they have a common enemy. And again, as I started off saying tonight, you get these people in the church even today. People who, can, who are completely at odds with one another. Who will unite over a common enemy. Normally somebody doing the work of God. It happens again and again and again. I've seen it so many times. But that is how hard their hearts were. Guys, when you sin, and we all do, when you sin and God's word shines a light on your sin, you're doing something you shouldn't do and there's something in the Bible that says, you know, this is wrong or you should be doing this and you're not doing it or something like that. You get just two choices. You either repent and change your ways. That isn't going to say that you're never going to fall again and have to repent again. We'll probably repent again and again and again over many things. We, we, get, we get up and we fall and we get up and fall, but we keep pressing on. But you repent when you're confronted with it. Or else you double down. You justify your sin. You argue the, the rationality of your sin and the basis for your sin. And well, you know, I, I, I'm okay. this is alright, I can do this because... And in every case, when you double down, you add more sin to your sin. These are the people who are supposed to know the word of God better than anybody else. And they're now at a point where they're plotting with their most hated enemies to kill the Son of God. That's what happens when you sin, don't repent, sin, don't repent, Sin, don't repent, and you let it go on. And there is only one way to resolve it, and that is to repent. But they didn't. Now, if you think I'm going to spend as long on the second half, you'll be relieved to know I'm not. I'm just going to whiz through this, this summary. And this section ends with this little summary. That's the last controversy. It's now done and dusted. I just wanted to wrap this up because it kind of sums up the whole section we've been dealing with and uh, it leaves us ready for the uh, 12 apostles next week. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So without getting into the geography of it too much, people from all around the different regions, particularly from in the region of Galilee, are there and they are uh, following Jesus. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So the reason that there are so many is because they've heard what he's doing. 
And again, as we've already seen in the Gospels, he's trying to preach, and there are these miracles that are happening, and as such, this is causing there to be a crowd. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now, who, whoever said that Jesus wasn't inherently practical as, as well as anything else? You've got this situation where already a leper has pushed himself upon Jesus. And there's all sorts of legal, in the sense of mosaic law, implications of that. We've had people removing roofs to get into a building to be with Jesus. And so they've now got just an, something that is just incredibly practical as a solution. And, you know, there's no problem with us, as well as being biblical, being very practical at times. And Jesus here is just practical. He's like, you know what, get me a boat. I'll go back off the shore and preach in the boat. And that, that way, nobody wanting healing can come and push themselves upon me. And, uh, and, and crush him, quite literally. And, you know, that's, a, that's a, one heck of a big crowd of people. I mean, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people are leaving behind their work and coming to follow Jesus and coming to see what he's doing and coming to hear him. And it's been great for drawing a crowd for his preaching, but he wants to make sure he is preaching. And that's why I think verse 11 fits in so well at this point. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, we've skimmed this thus far. I'm not going to resolve everything now, but I'm going to talk about it more now. We'll, we'll have more of this a little bit later. But we do know that the demons come along and they cause problems. They cause mayhem. Um, they've already interrupted his preaching. The very first incident of his preaching, we have them interrupting it. And so it is that when they see him, they know who he is. They have great knowledge. And so he shuts them up. Now, there is somehow this weird paradox that Jesus is on the one hand trying to proclaim who he is through what he does but on the other hand he's telling them to be quiet and not to say who he is and when you add in the leper and Jesus saying look don't go and tell anybody about what I've done go instead and present yourself to the priest if you miss the whole mosaic context and the fact that he was required to do it under law then Mark is painting a very much a picture of everybody shutting up and not telling anyone who Jesus is which to, to us can seem problematic right so I think that we need to talk about it a little bit more I think that one thing is, is that they know that he is the son of God which is very much a messianic term and it's accurate it's a term that he that describes him well but it's a term that in the Old Testament was typically used to speak of the second coming of Christ it speaks of one coming in power it comes to the setting up of a kingdom and Jesus is already proclaiming the kingdom and one wonders whether part of the reason here, and, and some argue that part of the reason here, is not to be such a threat to the Herodians of the world. To, because his kingdom isn't going to be, at this time, like other kingdoms. And the kingdom that he's offering is the kingdom that was promised. And I think that's an important point. It's not like he's offering them a different kingdom now, that's different from the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. It's the same kingdom. It's the kingdom of Christ. But it's not going to become fully orbed. It's not going to become, it's not the full outworking of his kingdom isn't going to happen until the second coming. But it is the same kingdom. It's the kingdom of Christ. That's how I would look at it in any way. 
And it's a difficult issue, and I don't think there's any easy answers. I think that the best answer, really, thus far, is that, yes, I understand that the leper had mosaic requirements to present himself, but certainly Mark seems to be portraying, you don't tell anyone either. You, demon, don't tell anyone, and you, leper, don't tell anyone. And I think that part of that reason is that Jesus wants to be defined on his own terms. He will present who he is rather than have others present who he is. Now, the demons, obviously, are, are, um, although they know who he is and confess him, not a particularly reliable witness, not, not uh, who he wants proclaiming him, not who he wants to be associated with. And we're going to see in two weeks' time just how problematic it is him being associated with demons who are proclaiming him. And you can see why he might want them to shut up. Um, so that's a specific answer for that. But I think more broadly, we have this picture that Mark paints where Jesus is going to represent himself. And there's a good application there, I think, for us. And that is that, you know, and I say this all the time with my preaching, it's not my job to be clever, which is a real relief, I can kind of begin to tell you. It's not my job to read through the newspapers, see what's going on in the world and trying to work out if some vague prophecy in Ezekiel or Isaiah is being fulfilled today. I have no interest in that kind of stuff at all. My job is simply to teach the Bible. Remember, this, this is the words of Christ. Not just the stuff in red, the stuff in black as well. It's all the word of Christ. It's his word. It's God's word. It's Christ's word. And my job is simply to present it to you. Not to add, not to manipulate, not to puff it up, not to spin it in any way, shape or form, just to present it. Because Jesus is perfectly capable of representing himself. My only job is to explain it, translate it as it were, so that you can hear him as he represents himself. And I think that that, certainly at this stage, and trust me, it's something that scholars and pastors and theologians don't agree on either so it's a tricky one but my best understanding of it is there are specific answers with a leper he had to go and present himself with the demons he doesn't want to be associated with them but mark is also painting this general picture where jesus will represent himself and not only will he represent himself but he will choose and decide for himself and so next week we we come to the section where the controversies have ended and we will have the decisions that come out of those controversies. Decision of Christ, the decision of, um, we'll do that next week, the decision of the leaders, which we'll do the week after, and probably the same week we'll do the decision of his family as well. But that's all to come, and uh, I hope you'll be here for that. Let's pray, and let's thank God for his word. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this, this amazing gospel. And, uh, Father, I, really, I think sometimes on a Sunday night, I don't really care how many comes out because I'm really enjoying it. I could almost do it by myself sometimes. It's just, it's just the most wonderful of Gospels. It's just the most well-constructed and put together. And it's been just a joy seeing your Word, Lord, unpacking it. And I pray that, that we in seeing your word and seeing your revelation and seeing your son and seeing his character that we again might be changed by it and father may we not be herodians who go out and compromise and become like the world 
but may equally we not be Pharisees who burden people with religion that is not of you. We thank you, God, for your ways, for your truth. May we never stray far from it, one way nor the other. Amen.